It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, chapter 6, and we open this morning to verse 14. If you're taking notes, you can look there on the back of your bulletin. The title of this morning's sermon is, The Gospel Provokes Hostility. The gospel, we know, uh, as I talk to my kiddos about it, just in their training, uh, and I'm encouraging them, right, to, uh, to provoke their, uh, to provoke one another, the, the boys to provoke their, their sisters to love and good works, right? Not to provoke them in the other direction, right? Amen? And we need to be provoking each other to love and good works, not provoking each other in the other direction, Right, And so we know that the gospel provokes to love and good works. It compels us. In fact, it says that for Christ's love compels us, uh, moves us, stimulates us. But the gospel also provokes hostility. And those who uh, say they're going to join Christ in carrying his truth can anticipate rejection. Okay? And we read that here in chapter 6. Jesus has been uh, helping us understand. In fact, God in his sovereignty shows the disciples there at the beginning of chapter 6. We see Jesus' rejection in Nazareth. So right there in God's sovereignty, he, he is showing that even in his own town, Jesus is not received. That, that sometimes those closest to us will not accept us because of the gospel. But it's worse than that, than just not being accepted. The gospel will provoke intense hostility against you that will cost you. Okay? The disciples of Jesus learned this early on as they grieved along with Jesus the loss of John the Baptist, and that's what's in front of us this morning here in um, Mark 6. As Jesus sends his disciples out to preach, they experience major victories, right? You've seen that, right? Many uh, demons are cast out, people are healed. It's amazing. Lots of victories, lots of people responding to the gospel, and they experience major, major victories. But one of the things Jesus is also saying, hey, you're going to experience some major losses. The Christian life, the life of following Jesus, is not just filled with experiences of triumph. It might be good to write that down. It's not just filled with experiences of triumph, of acceptance, of approval, of shouts of adulation. Like John the Baptist, the disciples will engage secular communities with a message that not everyone wants to hear, right? Yet, yet they will go, okay? They will go anyway, isn't that something? They will go and they will speak without knowledge or certainty about what kind of response is going to happen. They don't know, but they go. And i got to tell you how many times I put the brakes on going because I don't know. How faithless is that? It's faithless. That's not how it's supposed to work. 
Y'all, we can't be putting the the brakes on going because we don't know how someone's going to respond to the gospel. That's not what we see. We see them going without knowing, without knowledge of a consequence of what might befall them, what might come upon them. Right? When we raise our hands to follow Christ, we uh, don't want to be unprepared for the resistance that we will face. As we read the story here in a minute, we're going to read it. I'll read it through. And I think some things that might just come into our head, and I encourage you just to think about it as we read it and process it and pray, and may the Spirit of God just speak to our hearts this morning what He might have for us in this story of uh, this terrible injustice that happened. And as we read, we may wonder, where on earth is Jesus? Right? Where is the man? Like, he's walking the earth right now, and, and right where we're at in Mark. Where is the man on the boat that spoke out to calm the storms just a chapter or two before? Right? We talked about that. Where is that guy? Where is, where is the man that stopped the storm? To ease his disciples' stress and fear. Where is Jesus, right? The one that that just raised the 12-year-old in chapter 5. Where is that Jesus? I want us to think about that as we read. In in Mark chapter 6 here about the beheading of Herod. Where is Jesus? Or the beheading of John the Baptist, I mean. Where is Jesus in that? Where is the power of God in sustaining a person whom by God's estimation would be the most worthy human to sustain. Why would someone as just as John have to endure such injustice? Huh? Let's, let's think about that. Why would someone as just as John be subject to Herod's petty fleshly appetite? This man who was heralded, who was the herald, excuse me, this man, John the Baptist, who was the herald of the king of kings, is reduced to the shallow whims of an intoxicated fool. What? Let's read. 14, King Herod heard about it. We're in Mark 6, 14. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing John was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed by John, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guest. The king said to the girl, Hey, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He promised her with an oath. 
Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, ask for that. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guest, he did not want to refuse her. So the king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. Let's review. We learn... Uh, just to give some other, we could read about this in other gospel. We read about it in Matthew 14, 5. And we know that also, and it's helpful, I think, as we try to interpret this passage, that we understand that Herod wanted to kill John the Baptist as well. But he was scared to do that because of what the people would do. Verse 20 here, you can look at it there in the text in front of us, uh, says, He knew he was a righteous, that is, John the Baptist. Herod knew that he was a righteous and holy man. And so he's probably thinking, if I go around killing righteous and holy men in my community, I'll end up causing a revolt, right, and losing control. So the fact that he didn't kill John the Baptist doesn't tell us much about Herod's initially, that he didn't kill him initially, doesn't tell us much about Herod being a righteous man himself. Because as we read here, he did end up killing him. And so when he heard about Jesus and what Jesus was doing and all the miracles and and signs that were taking place, he thought, look there, verse 16, he thought, John, the one, that's immediately what comes to his mind. Talk about a guilty conscience, right? He knows John, the one I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Right? When you don't have much of a conscience and your whole existence is governed by your flesh, and that's what we see here, well, those people don't sleep well at night. That's right. John the Baptist didn't deserve to die. He, Herod knew it. And so he's probably freaking out a bit. And so as we read there in verses 14 and 15, there are lots of spectators around Jesus with speculations about who Jesus was. Some said what? It's John the Baptist who's been raised. That's why miraculous powers are at work. And others said, no, it's Elijah. And others said, no, he's a prophet like the prophets from long ago. And beginning in verse 17, we are given an account of how John the Baptist ended up being beheaded by Herod. We see it. We just read it. Herod gave orders to arrest John the Baptist and chain him in prison. That's the first thing we see. And for what purpose, we ask? Right? Well, it's... We read it right there. John had confronted Herod about taking his brother's wife. Verse 18, John had been telling Herod, look there, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Right? It was clearly written in the law that you shouldn't do this sort of thing. And so John was clear, Herod, you are disobeying God's law. That's what the text is saying. Herod, you're disobeying God's law. Leviticus 18, 16 specifically where it says there in Leviticus 18.16, I suspect that John the Baptist used this passage in talking with Herod. He said, you're not to have sexual intercourse with your brother's wife. It's very clear. You, you wouldn't think that law would have had to been written. All right? I wouldn't have. Nobody would have ever had to tell me that. But it's a law there nonetheless. Right? And 
We see it written clear. Isn't that something? God in his graciousness and his kindness, he knows how, how far we'll go in our sinful flesh. You know what I mean? Like he knows he has to be so plain to us. So plain. Hey, let me just make it clear. You're not to sleep with your brother's wife. Okay? Right? She's your brother's family. Very clear. So God's word, we could be thankful, is very clear. But Herod didn't like its clarity. Right? Interestingly, we learn in verse 20 that while Herod didn't like John's clarity when it came to John confronting him, he, notice there at the end of verse 20, he would be very perplexed listening to John, yet he liked to listen to him. Right? This confrontation, uh, though, uh, didn't just bother Herod, did it? It bothered his wife even more so. Verse 19, we see how offended she was. Held a grudge. Anybody ever held a grudge against somebody? Yeah. You ever had a grudge held against you? Right? And so she held a grudge, and it says there in the text that she wanted to kill John the Baptist because of this. But Herod protected. Right? Herod protected John. Because Herod feared, didn't he? He feared the people, not because he loved John. We just established that earlier. Verse 21, though, this opportune time presents itself there at Herod's birthday party. Big celebration. We see there verse 21, all the important people in Galilee were there, and Herodias seizes this opportunity, verse 22, and she sends her daughter. And hear that for a second, right? Like, be there for a second, moms, dads. She sends her daughter to dance in front of these men. Her daughter's dance pleased the kings and the guests. And he says, Herod says, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he said this with an oath. Whatever he asked me, up to half my kingdom, I'll give it. Verse 24, so she inquired uh, of her mother. This was, right, this is exactly what Herodias wanted, and this is exactly what she was waiting for and planning and scheming, and so she instructed her daughter to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And notice she says there, immediately. Like, didn't want Herod to have time to rethink what he was about to do. And so it says, even although he was distressed, he did not refuse her. Why? Because it says because of his oath, he did not want to lose faith. So because of his oath and the other people that were in attendance there at the party, right? But let me just say, a pause right here. This isn't a main point of the sermon, but let me just say from my own experience, if you promise you're going to do something and you realize what you promised is evil, Right? It is not evil to break your promise and repent instead of your impetuous behavior that made a liar out of you, okay? You can't say, well, I said I was going to kill him, so I might as well. No, you have to say, man, I was being, like, I got to repent of my impetuous behavior, right? But his drunken lust, hear that, his drunken lust had him violently opposed to the gospel and its leading men. John and Jesus, verse 27, he fulfilled his request. 
And because of baseless, hear that. That's really what we're trying to get at because that's where this hostility comes from. Because of his baseless fleshly desires, the man who stood for the gospel prepared the way for the gospel, right? This good man, this righteous man was beheaded. The only righteous people alive in this story, verse 29, are John's disciples. He took care of his body. Matthew 14, 12 tells us they reported it to Jesus, right? And when Jesus heard, what did he do? He withdrew to a remote place by a boat to be alone. There's the story. What's the takeaway? First, point number one in terms of our takeaway this morning. How can we apply this to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives, to our church, to our homes? The enslaved flesh is hostile to the gospel, all right? That's what we see, I think, here in this text. The enslaved flesh is hostile to the gospel. Herod's threatened by John the Baptist, wanted to kill him, yet enjoyed listening to him. He feared the people. He didn't kill him. His flesh, notice his flesh, right, this back and forth, this sort of vacillating, right? His flesh dictates his hostilities and controlled his life. That's what the flesh does, right? Enslaved flesh dictates hostilities and controls your life, okay? And you can only be set free from that control of your flesh through Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you feel kind of controlled by these fleshly impulses and desires, know that you can't get out except through Christ's provision there on the cross. His flesh dictates his hostilities and controlled his life. That's Herod. His fleshly enslavement caused him to be hasty, thoughtless, impetuous, reckless. Isn't that what the, and, and we say this, theologians have a word for this, the noetic view of sin. Sin makes you stupid. Is sin making you stupid this morning? Just look at your life. How much stupidity, right? is sprinkled throughout the course of your life. Sin makes me stupid. Sin makes you stupid, right? Sin made Herod stupid. It was hard to know which fleshly desire would reign over the other in any given moment, right? Fear, this is something else we see in Herod as we reflect here. Fear and being a man-pleaser. Right? Fleshly appetites that controlled Herod. I would say those are a couple. It restrained him from doing a very evil thing in one instance. So we're like, wait, well, Herodias, his wife is the bad. She's the bad one, right? Herod doesn't want to kill. Well, he imprisoned him, okay? He chained him, right? The one that shouldn't be in chains is, is the one in chains. And actually, if you want to keep going down that road for a minute, the the real people in chains here aren't the one in chains. You, you following me? The, the real one in chains, okay, wasn't John. You say, well, yeah, he was. He was physically in chains. But no, 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 no. Uh, actually, the one in chains, right? The, the people in chains in this passage were enchained and enslaved to their flesh, 
right? They are just being controlled like crazy. They're enslaved. That flesh, they were a fearful and angry people holding grudges. And This family, okay, is a mess. If you study this family, this family was a complete mess. And why? Because they were battling... They were, they were just battling each other. They were scheming against each other. They were uh, insecure about each other. Why? Because they were ruled and in, they were in chains. That's why. Principles rooted in the flesh directed his decision-making. All right? Herod's hostility toward the gospel flowed out of his enslaved heart for himself, for approval and power. He saw the gospel as his competitor instead of as his savior, right? John the Baptist, Jesus, were a threat to his leadership. Herod wanted a throne, but what does the gospel tell us? You got to get off the throne, right? And that's all Herod can think about. That's why his life's such a mess, because he wanted to run his life the way he wanted to run his life. And it just created so much chaos in his life. See, the gospel says, right, <laughs> you've got to get off the throne. Herod wanted on the throne. Verse 21, 22, his enslaved flesh makes him very unprincipled and more hostile to the gospel than we may have expected, certainly as I'm reading, than I would have expected his wife's Hear that, man. Then we're going back to the, the daughter dancing. His wife's daughter dances, and it pleased his guests so much. It pleased him. As verse 23 tells us that he'd give her anything, and it just makes you wonder, doesn't it? It made me wonder. Like here he is saying, I'll give you anything, essentially, up to half my kingdom. And I think that's just, uh, he's just speaking like, he's not literally wouldn't have given her half his kingdom, but he's trying to emphasize, look, one, how do you know that? Well, because it wasn't his to give the way the, the structure was all set up there. But, but anyway, um, he, he's trying to say, he's trying to be cool in front of his guests and say, man, I'll give you anything. Uh, and... And it just makes you wonder what kind of a dance this was. I suspect, I suspect he was drunk. He was certainly drunk with lust. Drunk with lust for man's approval. Drunk on lust to display his authority and power. So that when his wife's daughter returns to tell him what she would like, he immediately did the thing that he said earlier that he wouldn't do, right? Again, that's what happens when your principles, right, are rooted in the flesh. You're directed by, your decision-making is directed by that, right? His deep distress, as we see there in the text, says he was deeply distressed. Oh, don't be fooled, right? Don't be fooled. I know I'm tempted, oh, man, poor Herod, man, he was distressed, he was really perplexed, man, he was in a, in a hard spot, you know, you, you, we don't be fooled by that, poor guy, oh, poor guy, got himself in a hard spot, no, man, this guy was power hungry and ruthless, right, don't feel bad for him. Distress, his distress didn't stop him, did it? 
not wanting to lose face, his lust for approval, honor, respect. That's what ended up controlling his heart. Herodias, on the other hand, seems to have one thing on her mind. Her enslaved fleshly hostility seems more bound to just one particular idea, which is killing John. One little grudge, right? That's what drives her. Anyone? Right, you're fine. And in all other areas of your life, man, you are good. But you got one thing that you just can't let go of. You have this grudge. And you got an axe to grind. You're just going to grind that axe, man. And you wake up to grind that axe. You go to bed to grind that axe. You just grind that. That flesh got. Oh, you're a beautiful person. You're not distressed. You're, you're beautiful. You're, you're set. Your life's golden in all kinds, all these other areas. You're the nicest gal. You're the nicest guy at the party. But, boy, don't bring up that axe that I got to grind, that grudge. She had, a, she had a, an axe to grind, and she made sure it was. But didn't she? Look there. Killing John. And she knows her husband well, and she is able to scheme against him to use his fleshly drive to accomplish hers. You hear that? Sadly willing to sacrifice her daughter's honor to dance in front of these men. Man, how driven was she? You say, well, that maybe have been how it was back then. No, the Jews would not have allowed a woman to dance like this before a Greek, and even a Gentile mother would not have encouraged such a thing. And these people are a mess, man. They are enslaved by their flesh. Look what it has them doing. Result, they're hostile to other people, including their own family. Whoa, their own blood. It's sickening. And they're hostile to the gospel. Now, what about us? Oh, man. Turn this on us. If we're in Christ this morning, we know that we were once ruled by fleshly motives. We know that we were once enemies of the gospel, right? Enemies, and think of it, enemies of the cross of Christ. How can you be an enemy? How can you be an enemy of, of, of something so selfless and loving? Dying to forgive. That's where we once were, enemies of the cross. In fact, Christ died for us while we were enemies. That's right. The question for us this morning, perhaps a takeaway question is to raise this, are we still ruled by fleshly motives and appetites? Now, this will be a hard question to answer. I really want, like, it, it's going to take some prayer and meditation for you to really answer this question. In what ways, I should say, not, because that's a yes or no, let's, let's do this better. Uh, uh, in what ways are we still ruled by fleshly motives and appetites? You see, enslaved flesh is hostile to the gospel. Colossians 1.21 says that we are once like this, alienated and hostile in our minds. And this hostility, it says there in Colossians, was expressed in our evil actions. Right? That was us. Kind of like Herod. Okay? So we're quick to read about Herod and go, man, that guy was nuts. 
Glad I'm not like that nut job. Philippians 3.18, it says there, Philippians 3.18 says, For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's Herod and there's Herodias. They're both, we see in the story, it's very clear, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And here is a description in verse 19 of those who live as enemies. I'm talking verse 19 of chapter 3 of Philippians. It, it gives us a description of those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And it says this, that their end is destruction. You hear that? If you're living it as an enemy, there's a consequence to that. If you live an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of the cross of Christ, there's a consequence to not accepting Christ. Right To living according to your fleshly desires and impulses, the consequence is that your end is destruction. It says that their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and their focus is on earthly things. Where are we at? Just, this is good for us to ask, our, to turn this on ourselves. Because we must be different, right? Those who put their faith in God, we must be different, right? Our focus should not be on earthly things. Right? Those are people who live as enemies of the cross. Right? Right? And so our focus needs to be uh, on heavenly things. Why? Because our citizenship in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And we, as citizens of heaven, want to be eager for things uh, not here. Right? Eager for things that are not bound by here but bound instead by the agenda of heaven. Right? If bound by the agenda of this world, then we would be hostile to the gospel, for the gospel is heaven's agenda. Right? James 4.4, 4, if you want a verse to go with it, says, if you wish to be a friend of the world, right? Or let's start first. Back up there, 4-4, four, four, friendship with the world is hostility to God, right? And we could add hostility towards God's gospel. You hear that? Friendship with the world, hostility towards God's gospel. If you wish to be a friend of the world, you're going to be an enemy of God. And we look at John in the story. John was not bound or controlled by approval or respect or esteem of men and women. His mood. How is your mood? What is your mood in this life controlled by? John's mood, right, his sacrifice was bound to the agenda of heaven. Hear that. We talk a lot about moods and attitudes, right? Look at John's mood and attitude his sacrifice was bound by the agenda of heaven. You look at Herod, Herod's mood, man, he was all over the place, okay? Vacillating back and forth. Herod's mood, how's your mood? Herod's mood, his behavior was dictated by power and control and approval and respect, right? And so what does that mean? Like when we're asking, how is your mood? Well, when I'm respected, I do pretty well. When I got power, when I got control, when I got this or I got that, I do pretty well. But you start taking that stuff away from me, man, and I'm going to order an executioner to take an axe to your neck. Herod wanted to have it both ways. We want to have it both ways. 
So this general idea of our enslaved flesh is hostile to the gospel speaks to a specific thing about me and about you, instigating a response that brings us to point two. Okay, let's try to transition there. I forgot there were three points. I thought there was just one. So we're moving on, pressing forward. The gospel call to repentance offends our lifestyle. All right, I'm trying to make a little bit. Like this could be, I, I wrestle with this. Does this just go tuck, tuck neatly uh, inside point one or is it just tuck neatly under point one as its own separate point? So we're making its own separate point and I want us to see some things here, right? The message of repentance offends my chosen lifestyle. It confronts it which can turn me away, it can turn me away from the gospel or send me to my knees in repentance, all right? When the, the message of the gospel, right, which is the message of repentance, it offends my lifestyle and I have one or you and I have one or two responses to this message of repentance. It either, it either uh, sends me to my knees in repentance, right, in response and thank you and I draw near and I'm tucked under the provision of Christ, or I, it instigates a response of offense, and I reject. I reject. You see, I think the general understanding that we are all bad, and the flesh, our flesh, like it's an enemy, and we're all sinners, right? I think, at least in this room, we're all good with that. We're good, yep. The flesh is, is, you know, we're all, we have this fleshly propensity for sin. You know, we all have this, this propensity to do the evil thing, the wrong thing, and we're good with, with that sort of general statement, right? That's something the religious in this room right now, we can embrace. But we start to say, uh, my sin, right, start to say to me, my sin is worse than hers, Right? Because my sin is something I can control. It's what I'm responsible for. Well, that starts to offend me. Because you're starting to attack my lifestyle. You see where I'm going with this? It, it, it's part of point one, but sometimes I'm, my, my thing is, is that we try to, to make, to separate the two. The gospel called a repentance addresses me. And that's where I think we want to say, well, what about her? What about him? Right? I want a partner in crime. Right? Because we don't want to be the worst one in the room. If you follow me for a second, Paul's statement that he is the chief of sinners, theologically, I had a hard time with this one. Because we're all sinners, and he's saying he's the chief, and so I got tied up there. But So religiously, just to, to move on, religiously I was comfortable with the corporate classification that I'm just another sinner like you, and you're just another sinner like me. But the gospel call speaks to the specifics of, of individuals. The gospel call targets the individual, the me, Right? So this, this gospel call to repentance is to, to raise that, that question in my life about what am I going to do when the gospel hits me and confronts my lifestyle? What am I going to do? Right? When it calls me to a specific action of repentance based on how I'm living my life. Right? That's where it's like, well, 
I'm I'm good with talking in generalities, but start to just talk about me as as the sinner and the specific sins in my life, well, let's move on. I've got better things to do today. Do you, you follow? Right, I'm being called to acknowledge and repent of my sin, of my hostile life choice. My point is that the general statement we're all sinners can miss us if, if not understood at the ground level of where I'm living. John the Baptist confronts. You say, well, where does this go? Well, John the Baptist confronts their lifestyle. If you look at it, John the Baptist, he, uh, Herod liked to listen. He was intrigued. He liked to listen to him. Except there was this one thing that at least the text indicates that some, one thing that set him off and set his wife off. And that was when, when Herod said, well, I know this whole gospel thing, it sounds real interesting and the teaching on the kingdom of heaven and what God is doing and the, and the powers and the blessing that come with this new ministry and this new covenant that, that here now the Messiah is here and Jesus is with us and look at all the good he is doing. But, but then when John moved off of that and said, well, let me just tell you, it's calling you to make a decision, Herod about your lifestyle. And, oh, Herodias, over here, it's calling you to make a decision about your lifestyle. Well, that's when they're like, enough's enough. Forget it. Didn't want to hear it. The message of repentance can provoke a hostile reaction because it's speaking in direct, hear this, it can invoke and provoke a hostile reaction because it's speaking in resistance. It's speaking in, excuse me, it's speaking in direct opposition to something I've embraced. Right? So that's why it, it provokes in me a potentially a hostile reaction when it directly confronts my lifestyle, a pattern of sin in my life, right? Because it's, it's in direct opposition of something I want, I enjoy, when your life and heart has embraced, embraced something and God's word comes along and says, hey, that, that passion you have, that position you've taken, that you are kindly so affectionate towards, hey, it's wrong. You'll be tempted to bristle like Her- Herodias. Right? The gospel called a repentance can get under my skin. As it calls me to lay down something I just picked up. Does that make sense? Right? The gospel call to repentance, right, can, can really cause, cause a fleshly, it does. It causes our fleshly hostile reaction when we really look what it's asking, right? It's asking us to admit wrong when we, when we want to be right. Do you bristle? You say, man, you're just talking, the gospel doesn't do that for me. And so maybe you came in here with a better pair of shoes on. All right, But man, if you're honest, which I hope we would be, you're not supposed to lie in church at least, right? Right? But man, when the gospel, when you're confronted with trying to, to, to lay down something you just picked up, well, you bristle. When you're supposed to admit you're wrong, when you want to, I mean, you bristle. Right? To, to, to be called to, uh, to not love what I'm accustomed to loving, I bristle. And Herodias is likely thinking about John the Baptist right here. Who are you to tell me, John, Johnny? Who are you to tell me what to love? 
who are you to tell me how to love or how to organize my life, right? She's, she's likely thinking something like, hey, it's my body, my choice. Go talk this nonsense in the synagogue and stay out of the palace. Hmm. Boy, we could go down that road for a while. They loved their sin and hated and had hostility toward anyone who called them out. Do you bristle when someone identifies your sin? Or are you thankful? Are you offended or thankful? Let's look at point three. Gospel partnership doesn't mean immunity from calamity. Jesus and John the Baptist, right, are intimately, like they are partners, right? And it's interesting if you just go through and look at the similarities of their death. That's interesting study. But what we see in both of them is that uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, It doesn't mean immunity from calamity. The church, we've, man, we've got to understand this. Right? People here in this, in this, uh, even right here, but I think even today, as we see it, we see it in the passage, we see it today, people enjoy the excitement of thinking that Jesus was some great miracle worker like Elijah, like we read earlier, like Elijah, one of the prophets. Prophet, someone who'd come back from the dead, like John the Baptist. Uh, now, that, of course, is what caused Fared to, to be freaking out. But, and he's also intrigued by the whole thing. But today, uh, we hear people talk about Jesus sort of in these similar positive lights, right? Like he's just, he's this great, people really like him. People like Jesus, okay? Right? The secularist will use Jesus in the counseling, uh, uh, the secular psychologist will use Jesus in the, in the counseling setting. Okay, people like Jesus. When they learn about him, uh, they 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 point to him as this great moral teacher and one who uh, truly cared for the poor. They lift him up. This is the secularist, right? Not the churchman, but the secularist will lift Jesus up as a great moral teacher, a man who really cared for the poor, who was moved with compassion for those on the fringe of society. Jesus is somebody for all of us to emulate. He is our example. I was listening to a pastor last night. This is a pastor, all right, claiming to be a pastor of, for, for, for the kingdom, for Jesus. And here's what he said. He said, Jesus is not the only way to salvation. And Jesus never said that. This is, I'm quoting. He said, Jesus was simply inviting people to follow his example as a way to connect to God. And, you know, and he's saying, and I'm still quoting him, not me, this is him. You, and you can follow Jesus' path and be part of many different religions or no religion at all. And I'm still quoting. He says, salvation simply means wholeness and restoration. And you can do that as part of any religion or no religion just follow Jesus' path of loving your neighbor. That's it, man. That's what he's saying, end quote. That's what he's saying, all right? And I'm thinking, man, if that was true, I'm sure John the Baptist would like to have known that before he had his head cut off. 
John had firsthand experience that the gospel partnership with Jesus doesn't mean immunity from calamity. Loving your neighbor is letting people know they need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ for their forgiveness of their sins. And John did that at great cost to himself. See who John the Baptist is as we think about this point. I think it helps us understand this point even this point even uh, more intimately, more seriously, as we think about John's partnership with Jesus and how Jesus felt about John, and yet look what happens to John. At John the Baptist's birth announcement in Luke 1, 15, it says there that John will be great in the sight of the Lord. And then if we turn over to Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. And then if you look, uh, when... when uh, they were still in the womb. You know, they met in Luke 1, 41 and 43. John and Jesus were still in the womb. They met, and right, that you can see that there, that they were connected, even by that, there's a sense they were connected even by the power of the Spirit. Right. And so this loss was extremely hard on Jesus, as other losses and sacrifices would also be. And we see Jesus' pain and his quiet withdrawal after getting the news of John's death. But what I want to highlight in all that is that, that you talk about a partnership. You talk about somebody that, that Jesus was going to look out for and protects and cared very deeply for, ends up getting his head cut off. And so we go back to that, to that question of like when I said, man, you're going to wonder like where is Jesus in the story? Like because sometimes he does calm the storm, but he didn't cause the storm. He didn't calm the storm in, in John's life. And this is somebody he carried, cared very much for. And gospel partnership doesn't mean immunity from calamity. Right? It, it's interesting that we don't see John withdraw or pull away from calling Herod to repentance. Right? Here's a guy that is not going to listen. And yet, and I, that's another point. I know I'm all, I've got a lot of points. But this is a guy that's not going to listen. And yet God sends his best to make an appeal. Wow. And he's hated and he's beheaded. He's despised and he's killed. Right? The Lord isn't just sending us to call on to call people to repentance who will. Ah. Yeah, he, he's sending us to call on people to, to repentance, to share him with people who will end up bringing calamity, actually. Anticipate rejection. If you're seeking the Lord, if you're coming in here and you're saying, I am going to seek the Lord, I'm with Jesus, I'm putting my stake in the ground, right? If that's where you're at, you will not have the approval of this world. Are you sure you're in? Right? You will not have the approval of this world. Have you raised your hand to follow Christ? unprepared for resistance? Have you raised your hands to follow Christ, unprepared for the hatred? I think these questions that I'm going to ask here are relevant because I think sometimes we're, the, the answer, the, the improper answer is, is directing 
how we're carrying, or rather not carrying, the gospel forward in our lives, in our testimony in our own homes, in the way we treat each other, and in our testimony in our community. Okay, so let's review. We're looking at those areas. Right? How are we living it out? Have we raised our hands to follow Christ unprepared for the hatred? Have we raised our hands to follow Christ and think we can do better than him and his earlier followers and communicate in a more gentle and civil way so as to win the hearts of men in ways that they were not able? Right? And, and what I'm getting that at there is that I think sometimes we're, we're, we're so nuanced in our appeal for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that the culture doesn't even know what we're saying. Like how many Baptist leaders, right, have I heard be so nuanced in their appeal? I'm not sure after they're done talking where they stand on a particular gender issue. All right? Have we raised our hand to follow Christ unprepared for adversarial experience? Did we come to Christ thinking that now our life would be mostly a story of success and blessing? I think that's a, that's a good question to ask ourselves. We, we constantly see uh, success of Christians publicized. Don't we? But it is not popular and it doesn't print well or sell well to publicize the failures. Right? Nobody is telling the story of the faithful missionary who never won any souls to Christ. Or the, the one that went out church planning and just failed and failed and failed and failed and never planted a church, but was faithful. Nobody's telling that story. And so we just think that it's just triumph after triumph after triumph. Right? Nobody's telling the story of, of the one whose life work never saw much of a harvest. And I understand, but, but my point is that what is that communicating? When we learn that the Christian life is one of not playing the victim's hand, but taking up a cross, then we're prepared for those failures. We're prepared for those difficulties. We're prepared to, to take uh, the, the, the truth of Jesus Christ into a culture that will reject us. When we learn this, right, we're, that this is what it means to follow Jesus, right, taking up the cross, taking up our cross, right, we won't tap out. And so I leave us with this, that may we take the way of John. And boldly speak without need for approval. May we take the way of John here. And boldly and joyously live. Even in our own homes. Without need for proper treatment. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, uh, we ask for help. There's so many things to try to grab, and our hearts need this word this morning and the example of John the Baptist and, and even just what you were trying to communicate to our hearts regarding the acceptance and anticipating rejection. Or we will not know, uh, we will not know your pleasure and have man's approval. We can't have both. In our culture and in our own homes, Lord, just, just asking this morning that you would help us to be bold with your gospel truth that we would recognize that if we carry our, the cross, if we carry our cross, we take up our cross and die to self, that we, we must anticipate rejection, anticipate what will come. It doesn't mean there won't be victories. Oh, there will. But God, there will also be hostility and resistance towards us. And so God, I just ask for your help that we would do good at, at being able to resist um, when we resist the temptation to, to compromise, resist the temptation to, to kind of hide. And God, that we would just be bold and for your truth, that we would be unashamed of your gospel, unapologetic of this, this call on our life to be representatives of you. And so, Lord, I just ask that you'd help us with that. And I also ask that in our own homes that we would... Uh, that we would be able to, to not be more concerned about how we're treated. More concerned for, for our sensitivities and, and that sort of thing, God. That we'd be able to lay those things down and, and be concerned for one another. When we may not be treated the way we would sure like to be treated. So, Lord, help us to see the, all the various areas where we need to take up our cross, follow you, and that your glory, that your pleasure would be the thing that drives us forward. And God, that is, such a, that is so not part of, 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 man, we can't be living out of the flesh at all if we're going to experience that. And so we need your help, we need your grace, we need your mercy, we need the, the power of your spirit and the direction of your word to be able to, to walk in, in these, these moments where we are not getting what we're wanting out of, out of our lives and we're just able to still uh, take on the fruits of the spirit and walk in the spirit in our lives, even when we may be being offended or hurt. And so I just ask for your power and for your presence in this. In Jesus' name, amen.